Hey, Reality Family, welcome once again to our online gathering. Very grateful that you are joining us here today. We are continuing in our study in the Gospel of Mark, which we started last week. And we, we introduced this, the series by talking about some of the big words and themes that Mark is going to use to talk about Jesus, King and Kingdom and Gospel, and even the names of Jesus Christ, Son of God, Jesus itself. And I've tried to point out that all of us have preconceived notions assumptions and expectations about who Jesus is and ways that we categorize him that limit us from seeing the the Jesus that Mark wants to put out in front of us. And so this series is an invitation for all of us to acknowledge that we have those um, different expectations and assumptions and to unpack them a little bit and to allow ourselves to be reoriented to this Jesus that we're going to meet in the gospel of Mark in order that we might learn to honor him and glorify him and love him and, uh, and live like him. So that's the invitation to this series. It's also the invitation to our, our passage that we're going to look at today. One of the unique things about the Gospel of Mark is that he doesn't record Jesus' teaching as much. If you're looking through, there's less red words in this uh, Gospel than there are in most of the others. But he sends Jesus out. Jesus is doing things. He's doing things in order to show us what kind of king he is and what kind of kingdom that he's bringing. So let's take a look at the passage that we have in front of us today in Mark chapter 2 and examine what kind of king we see and what kind of kingdom he's bringing. So Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When he entered Capernaum, again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. This is Jesus. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway. And he was speaking the word to them. They came to him, bringing the paralytic carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after digging through it, they lowered the mat onto which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes who were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. This is God's word. So in this passage, we're introduced to Jesus. He's been preaching and doing miracles around, um, and he is now in in a house. And he is uh, teaching again, and all these people have crowded in to see him. There's just a crowd of people where we see that there are some uh, Jewish scholars here, some scribes, and there's Jesus. And these friends of a paralytic man want to bring him to Jesus, but they can't do it. So they climb up on top of the roof, they dig through, and they lower him down in front of all of these different people. And so we're all seeing the spectacle happen in front of us. And it forces a question, just like he is forced into the story. It forces the question that's asked uh, in verse um, verse 9. Which is easier? What does this paralytic need? Is it easier that his sins are forgiven or that he is healed and walked? And this is the the, the question that Jesus puts in this story. But it's also the question to each of us. When we see things in the world as they're not supposed to be, what is the greatest need that we, we think is there? Is that God forgives sins 
or is that those problems are healed? What did G and this puts us face to face with what Jesus actually came to do? What kind of a king is he and what kind of a kingdom does he bring? A kingdom that forgives sins or a kingdom that heals people? And our answer to this question will divide us into two groups much like it does in the story. Those of us who think the fundamental problem is a sin problem, uh, a spiritual problem between us and God, will emphasize that the son, the, the saying in the, in the passage, the son of man, uh, or the son, your sins are forgiven. And in fact, Martin Luther said that the whole of Christianity can actually be summed up in this statement, son, your sins are forgiven. So we emphasize our king as the Jesus of faith. Christianity is about a sin problem that we have and we need our king to come and solve the sin problem. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus died for our sins. So the death of our king is really important and we need to put our faith, we need to believe in this Jesus uh, for the forgiveness of our sins. That's who our king is. Our view of the kingdom will also follow. If that is our greatest need and that's what our king came to do, then kingdom work looks like evangelism and education. We need to uh, educate people who don't know that they have a sin problem and Jesus is the solution. And for those of us who follow Jesus, we're disciples of him, we need to continually re-educate ourselves of how deep our sin problem is and how that sin plays out in the world and how Jesus came to save. In his book, Kingdom Conspiracy, Scott McKnight gives this group of people uh, maybe a bit of a clever but a helpful label. He calls this the pleated pants version of the kingdom. And he says that because people who uh, really are drawn towards this are generally conservative, they're generally older, and they're generally more religious. And he's not saying those as negative or positive words. He's just saying that that's generally who is in this group of people. Um, And this kind of Christianity, this kind of focus on sin, Jesus dying, um, and and, uh, Christianity as exposing sin problems has a very difficult time in our society today, in Vancouver in 2021. Um, at, at best, people will think that we're very irrelevant. It's like Christians work at some sort of medieval theme park. And when they come to talk about their faith, like we're, it's like we didn't come out of character when we left our work. And we're using thou and, and terms like thou and, and um, thine and sin. It makes no sense to people in our common world. And it's also quite offensive People don't like to be told that they have a sin problem. They don't generally believe that about themselves. And for us to come and say that in front of people, it's offensive. So it has a hard time in our world today. Um, Which is not saying that it's wrong. Just pointing out that that is the reality of what we live and swim in. So because of that, uh, some of us have emphasized the other uh, answer that, that Uh, is possible in this story. We don't know that the fundamental problem is a sin problem between us and God, but there's definitely sin problems in the world and they play out on a very human realm. And we might use the term injustice to describe these problems. So the, the, the sin in the world or the real problems are poverty and addiction or systemic issues such as misogyny or race relations, racial tensions. And that's what Jesus came to deal with. That's what our King is doing. And we emphasize the healing of the body in this story. And we'll also emphasize our King Jesus as the Jesus of history. Maybe he died, maybe he is the person of faith, but the most important thing about him is his teachings. If we really get down to it, it's the ethic that he lived his life with. That's what we need to emphasize. That's who our King is. And therefore, kingdom work will look like bringing healing to the most vulnerable people in our society. It'll be partaking in social justice, doing helps professions or serving on the downtown east side. 
Scott McKnight has a label for those of us who find ourselves here too. He calls this the skinny jeans version of the kingdom. And he describes it really well by saying it's good deeds done by good people in the public sector for the common good. Good deeds done by good people in the public sector for the common good. So wherever justice is happening, wherever these good deeds are being done, that's where the kingdom of God is. And and if you press uh, this super far, if you go all the way down this road, you'll say like, really, the kingdom of God is brought by Jesus, but anyone can do kingdom work. Anyone who is engaging in these things that Jesus did, living his ethic, will be able to do kingdom work. And McKnight points out that this group of people skew younger, more liberal, and they definitely wouldn't call themselves religious, maybe more spiritual. And this is a kind of Christian excuse me, a kind of Christianity that can flourish in our society. We're not coming to tell anybody what they need to do or what they need to change. Um, for Rather, we're just coming to help. We're coming to live as Jesus did. And I've noticed in my own life, but also in the many people that I've had a privilege of talking to, that the shift happens um, as we get older. We grew up in a pleated pants version of the kingdom. And as we get older, and and maybe as we live in Vancouver as well, as we have kids ourselves, we shift over to a skinny jeans version of the kingdom. So this passage places that all in front of us, just like it placed in front of the people who were there. And it asks us this question, what does the kingdom of God look like? What does our king look like? Does he wear skinny jeans or pleated pants? So I want to take a look at three parts uh, to this passage. First, what is the nature of the problem according to Jesus? What is the problem that he sees? The second is, what does it mean, what does what Jesus does mean for those of us who are skinny jeans kingdom people? And then what does this mean for those of us who are pleated pants kingdom people? So a quick recap again on the story. I know I've been talking for a few minutes. So uh, the, like I said, this man gets lowered down in front of Jesus paralyzed. Everybody is watching. And Jesus looks at the faith of his friends and he says to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now this word sin is very important for us to look at. It's another one of these mega concepts in the Bible like king or Jesus or kingdom or for me barbecue. So we need to, it's one of those things we need to be continually unpacking and repacking. The story of sin in the Bible starts with a God who makes a good world. So sin is a bad thing, but God creates a good world. And in this, this is like his kingdom. It's what, a picture of what it's supposed to look like. And it's God's kingdom. He's the king. He's at the center. We are his people. We're part of his kingdom. And the kingdom is, is this garden, Eden. Um, and he's encouraging his people under his rule and reign to go and take his kingdom even farther. And the, the word that is used to describe this is the biblical word shalom or the Hebrew word shalom. We translate this word into the word peace in English. But it's, and it includes peace, but it's much bigger than that. It's a picture of a flourishing cosmos and what it looks like for God to be the king and for his kingdom to be taking place on earth. Now, sin is uh, something that comes and breaks shalom in our world. And it turns things from the way that they are supposed to be, this picture of a flourishing cosmos, into things the way that they're not supposed to be. And it breaks down all of the relationships that we have, the relationship with God, the relationships with ourselves, with each other, and with our world. And so the Bible would say any time that we experience the breakdown of those relationships, distance from God, um, maybe dissonance within ourselves, relational breakdown, and environmental degradation, all of these are sin and the effects of sin in our world. Now, in this story that we just read, we're introduced to a paralyzed man. 
Now, you don't have to be a Christian to know that something is not the way that it's supposed to be with him. His legs do not work in the way that human legs should work. Now, in order to make sense of what's going on, he's dropped down in front of these people. All of us immediately take our stories and we overlay them onto what's going on. So we see something that's wrong and we ask two questions. Why is it wrong? What's the problem here? And what can be done about it? In Christian language, we might say, why is sin here? What is the root of sin? And who can save? And all of us do this. We overlay a story on top of it to make sense. And the Bible gives several possible answers to this story. Why is the problem here? The first part of the story. It gives five possibilities, or I like to break it down into five for my own way of thinking. Here's the first four. The problems could exist because that person did something wrong. It's his fault. The problems could also exist because someone else did something wrong. It's their fault. The problem could exist because a community has something wrong with the community. And the problem could exist with something because of the culture. So there's four levels. Me, if there's something wrong in my life, it's I could be the problem. I could be the root of the problem. Someone else could. My community or family and my culture. Those are our options. And in most stories that we see, these layers are intertwined. Let me tell you a fictional example of uh, maybe a paralyzed man today. Let's imagine we have a friend who uh, doesn't have the use of his legs and we go out for coffee together and we ask, you know, what happened? And he tells us this story. Um, I was at a party a couple of years ago and uh, I got into a car with a friend and I knew he had been drinking a lot, but I still got in the car with him. And this friend, uh, like I said, had been drinking a lot and he crashed into a light post and now I'm paralyzed. So we see the first two levels at work in this story. The the person made a poor choice, a poor decision, but the friend also had made a really poor decision in driving drunk. But imagine we we stay for coffee and we chat a little bit longer and his friend comes by and we we learn his story. That he was drinking that day because uh, he had just failed an exam. And his father is an overbearing father and always telling him he's not doing good enough. And that day he had just lit into him, told him he's a piece of garbage and not worth anything, and he's embarrassed that that's his son. And his mother is an alcoholic, and so he's trying to deal with these, the anger that's inside of him and the shame, and so he goes and he borrows some of his mom's alcohol, and he gets really, really, really drunk. And that's why he was drunk that day. And so we see that there's a third level to this story, a familial level that's also bearing some responsibility for the actions that day. And let's say we even attend a sociology class and we pull back and and we wonder why our society is one that allows uh, or doesn't have more options for people to get home safely, for example. Or we might say why we encourage young people uh, to, to have these kind of parties where they binge on alcohol, this kind of culture, and also this culture of, of thinking that they're going to be invincible to the consequences of their actions. Or a culture that allows people to gain access to this much alcohol and get drunk. We might ask all those questions about our society. And so we see that our society also enables this kind of behavior. So it's, it's actually a quite an intertwined story. There are many layers to it. But most of us, if, if you hear that story, we, we feel bad, but we don't know what to do. We don't know who to blame and we don't know what anyone could possibly do about it. So we tend to simplify the story. We'll choose one or two of those layers and we'll say that's where the problem ultimately stems from. That's the biggest problem of all of them. And therefore, that's also the solution. And in Jesus' day, in the culture of the people that are sitting there, they would say the the person is paralyzed, the sin is there because he has sinned 
or someone in his family has sinned. That's why this person is paralyzed. Now, we don't share those assumptions, but we still simplify the story. For those of us who are more conservative, we tend to to move more towards personal responsibility as the ultimate cause and the ultimate solution. So if we hear this story that I just told, we'll say the, the, the person made a bad choice to get in a car with a friend. He shouldn't have made those choices. And the savior is then, our culture is going down the drain. We need to inform people. They need to make better decisions and take personal responsibility. Um, more liberal people will go the other direction. They'll zoom out farther to, to three levels, three and four. The ultimate problem lies in systemic issues, in injustices. That person was just a victim of their circumstances and all the things that had happened to them over their, li- their life. We need to deal with the sin that we see on the, f- the farthest levels. That's who's responsible and that's how we can um, be saved. So in summary, all of us see sin, whether we're Christians or not. We all seek to make sense of it by telling a story on top of it. And I want us to notice, this is the takeaway, that in the story so far, all of the options for the root of sin and the solution to the sin that we see come from within the human realm itself. They're limited to individuals, to families, and to cultures. All uh, humans or groups of humans. That's the root of the problem if we look at life this way and that's ultimately the solution. Whether we skew more conservative or whether we skew more liberal. In the end, it's all up to us and our results are all about our ability to work together. They're human powered in the end. But everybody in the story that we read in Mark 2 has a fifth layer that they would have assumed was at work in this story. It's a story for understanding why the world is the way that it is. And whether you're a Jew or a Greek, a a Gentile or a Roman, the most important level of your story was the story, this this other level, this fifth level of the story of the gods. Now, we don't have time to go through all the different myths uh, that were out there, but it it just suffices to say that that the gods ruled over the world and whatever they were doing directly affected human lives. And the Hebrew scriptures also have a way of telling this story and describing this layer. So just like Jesus is a king from another realm, he's the king of heaven, it says, as we saw last week, he's the king of heaven and he's bringing the kingdom of heaven here on earth. There's another alternate kingdom at work. And the Bible has many different names for this, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin, uh, the kingdom of death. And and just like that, uh, our kingdom or the kingdom of heaven has a ruler, this kingdom also has a ruler, again with many names, the accuser, the prince of the air, the beast, many different ones. And this kingdom, it's important to notice, is a supernatural kingdom. And by that, I don't mean that we need CGI in order to understand or explain it. But the Bible suggests that every single thing that we see on a human level, every individual problem, every community problem, every cultural problem, has is it's tied to this other reality in some way. There's a spiritual reality that is, is tethered towards every problem that we see. And the Bible asks us to, to have faith and see that this is a part of the story. Um, again and again, it says to open our eyes, to see, to not be blind to what is happening. So it's a supernatural kingdom that's above us and affecting us. It's bigger than us. And it's really important to know that in this, in this story, the kingdom of sin is active and alive. It's like a superorganism spreading through our world. It's breaking and actively working against the shalom in our world. 
And we can participate as people. We are not at the center of it, but we are kind of like the playground for these kingdoms coming and clashing. We participate in one or the other. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 5 that our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. We see, only see people and players here, but actually it's part of a bigger story and a bigger picture, which we are, we can be participants in one kingdom, the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness. And so sin in this story is participation in the kingdom of darkness. It's the spreading of this plague here on earth, which is against the kingdom of God and his kingship and the kingdom of light. So, with that background, we can now understand why the scribes have the feedback and the, uh, um, the reaction that they have. The paralysis of this man, this man who was dropped into their story, it's uh, something, he, they, they all see the same thing. Something is not the way that it's supposed to be. And for every person that's there, it's linked, his issue is linked to this cosmic story of sin at work in the world. And you can't fight this kingdom on your own. That's impossible. It'd be like a human being meeting Thor and just trying to fight him with your fists and he's got his hammer or whatever Thor. I think it's a hammer that Thor has. The only one who can solve this problem is another king, another cosmic king and another cosmic kingdom. He has the power to release us and bring us back into the kingdom of light. And the way that this happens in this society is by going to the temple. You go to the temple, which is the home of the king. You fall at his feet. You repent and you offer a sacrifice. And hopefully that will allow your physical issue to be dealt with. Your sin to be forgiven. And so in that story, Jesus comes. He's not in a temple. He's just in a house. He's not a priest. He's a teacher. And he says to this man, son, your sins are forgiven. And so the response of the scribes, given their um, worldview and the story that they lay over everything is appropriate. They say in verse seven, what, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus, through his actions and his words, is saying to them, I am the king. I am that cosmic king. I'm the one who brings the kingdom of light into the world. I'm stronger than the kingdom of darkness. And you, can, you need to let go of your Coleman barbecue ideas of what the king is and what the kingdom is and come to me. Come and follow me and be freed from your sin, from this cosmic kingdom's work in your life and in our world. So that's the story that's actually happening here. And that perspective on the story presents a challenge, especially to the scribes, of course, that were sitting there, to every person, but to the scribes specifically. But it also presents a special challenge to those of us who find ourselves to be skinny jeans, kingdom type of people. I'm generalizing, but those of us who uh, live in our culture um, in Vancouver and those of us who uh, are younger Christians are actually, I find they're very, very good we are very good at pointing out certain kinds of sin in our world, specifically systemic sin, the sin that happens at levels three and four, at levels of our communities and at levels of our culture. Um, that injustice happens because people are victimized by systems of oppression and injustice. And we attack these systems with righteous anger. And the Bible um, would actually agree these things exist. And unfortunately, oftentimes in um, evangelical Christian culture, we, we, we limit it just to personal sin. But the Bible is actually very clear that these levels of sin exist in our world. And we should be learning that from our brothers and sisters and our friends and people in Vancouver that love to point that out, but also from God's word. But for followers of Jesus, 
the story that all sin finds its roots in systemic places, in um, culture, and in um, families and in organizations is an incomplete story. It's an incomplete story with disastrous consequences. Because first, without this overarching story of the kingdom of sin, we will place cosmic blame, blame that's deserved on the kingdom of sin and its ruler, and we'll put it onto mortal people. We'll see that sin, um, we'll say systems of oppression, they're not just bad, but they are ultimately evil. They're the root of all evil and we'll attack them as such. We'll say the people that propagate these bad systems are not simply bad, but they are the devil themselves. And we will do to those organizations and those people what the, the people in our story do to the paralytic. We'll cast them out. We'll ignore them. Why would we make room for them? How could we love them? They're the problem. They're gross. And so that's what will happen. We'll demonize things. We'll put cosmic blame onto mortal people and systems, which in the Bible story are bad and broken, and we need to point them out and we need to change them, but they can't bear that responsibility. We will put that on them and attack them as such. The second problem is that without this overarching story, we'll not only put the blame on those people, but we'll also try to find infinite solutions in finite places. And specifically, we'll put the cosmic burden of salvation onto ourselves. And the Bible would say that we do have a role to play. Like Paul says, we are agents in this story. But as pure as our intentions are, and as great as our plans are, the Bible is super clear. We are not enough to battle this cosmic problem. We have to see that it's there, and we have to take the burden off of ourselves of trying to solve it. You know, I've had several friends who've gone to work in the downtown east side, and I've learned a lot through, uh, through them. One of the things I've learned is that most people last between six months and two years. That's the majority of people, and then they burn out or they quit. And as my friends have, many of them subsequently left, I talked with them afterwards as they've quit, feeling um, dejected, feeling disillusioned, and feeling burnt out, many of them. And they've used interesting phrases to describe what they see going on. They thought they could really help, great intentions, wonderful hearts, but they wade into problems that are, they thought they were swimming in the shallow end of the pool and they get dropped in the middle of the ocean. One of my friends said it this way, I felt like every day I was putting a band-aid on cancer. And he's a wonderful person. But the point is to say, in, in light of all of the levels of sin that are going on, he sees that maybe it's part of this bigger story and it's powerless. There's this feeling of being powerless when we're faced with the true injustices and the levels and layers of sin in our world. And the Bible asks us not to take on that burden. We can't bear the burden of being the ultimate savior to be the king who can come and conquer that kingdom. This is where the good news of Jesus comes in. That against the kingdom of sin, we are powerless. It is not here. It is not in those institutions or in individual people. There is something beyond. So we shouldn't blame them, but we are also powerless. We can't save. And this passage asks the question in this way, who then can forgive sins? Who can do something? Who can do something about all these problems that we see? And it has an answer. The son of man has the power to forgive sins. Who can forgive sins? Who can do something in a truly lasting way? in this crazy story of sin that we find ourselves in this broken world? And the answer is in Mark 1, 1, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yahweh saves that God has come, the long-awaited royal figure, the Son of God. He is here and he has the power to forgive sins. 
And when we accept the invitation to the story of the Bible, we're then able to take our eyes off of ourselves and allow Jesus to take his rightful place. This is how, um, you know, this is how Jesus goes from in our lives, from being just some itinerant preacher, someone who's in the back rooms of our lives, someone who existed 2,000 years ago, um, to somebody that we have the same response as the people in the passage to. They're astonished and they worship him and they glorify him. This is how he goes from being that small thing in our lives, as Tim Keller says, a kitty cat to being a lion is when we see that he has come to solve this kind of problem. He is the king of the world. He is the one who brings a new kingdom against these forces we're absolutely powerless against. He brings hope to our world for our lives and for the entirety of our world. And I want to say that this is so important because we are blessed in our community to have people who are wonderful, empathetic people. You see the problems in society and you go, and you serve as nurses and doctors and healthcare workers and people who work in nonprofits. And you're so wonderful. And I, I honestly say this, that you are an inspiration to a cold-hearted, non-empathetic person like me. But I know that many of you get tired along the way because these problems are so much bigger than you thought. You thought it was just level three and it turns out it's level one, two, three, four, and five. And so my, I, I, I want to say this, please don't lose this story of this cosmic kingdom of sin and the cosmic kingdom of heaven. Because that is the fuel that will keep you going in your work. I know that you feel tired. Please be renewed that there is something much bigger going on. There is something bigger that's happening that we are powerless against. But praise God, he has come. He has come. And, and Paul says it this way. That means that every labor that you do in reflection of this king, when we allow Jesus to be the savior, everything we do is not in vain. And we need you to keep working in those areas. We need you to be the practical hands and feet of Jesus and to take people like me, to be inspirations to people like me, to show us what the life of Christ and the kingdom looks like reflected through your life. So please don't lose hope. And then lastly on this point, I just want to say, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven. He's talking to him directly. Not only is Jesus here to talk about the kingdom of sin, but he comes to each one of us and he says that you need to be lowered down in front of me with all of your garbage. You're welcome in my presence. And I want to, as the king of the universe who brings a new kingdom and brings hope into your life, I want to meet you in that space. I want, to, I want you to come and for you to hear that this cosmic drama, this cosmic kingdom of sin is playing out not only in the world, but in each of our lives. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn says that the line of good and evil runs down the middle of every human heart. And each of us has our own cosmic drama of sin playing out in our lives. And Jesus comes to meet each of us and to say, your sins are forgiven. Come, come to the king. Come see my kingdom. So that's the challenge to the skinny jeans people in this story. But there's also a challenge to those of us who might be more pleated pants people. We get that there's a kingdom of sin and we have the right religious beliefs about that kingdom. But we might miss what Jesus is actually doing in this passage with his life. Not so much only what he's saying, but what he's saying and doing. Remember in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is put in front of us as someone who's doing things. So what does our king do in this passage? What kind of kingdom does he bring? Well, first of all, we see Jesus is here. He is right here in the middle of what's going on. He doesn't, um, he's not walking away, but our cosmic God comes as Jesus in the incarnation and he is here with us. He allows himself in this story to be interrupted. He's at home 
and he's preaching to people. And, and you may not notice this because you're not a preacher, but I noticed this. He might have had a really, really good sermon. He might have been only on point three of five. He's like, I got two more. And then this guy gets lowered through the roof and totally jacks up his sermon. Jesus allows himself to be interrupted. He sees this person. He sees this broken man. He sees the faith of his friends. He even notices the, 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 what the scribes are saying in their heart. He notices people. He doesn't turn away from them. He calls this man his son. He invites him into a relationship. He forgives his sin, this thing that you're longing for. And then he ultimately goes and he heals them. This is what our king looks like. This is the kingdom that he brings. So please don't make the king or the kingdom an either or in your life because Jesus doesn't seem to do so. He is the God who comes to forgive sins and he's also the God who comes to heal broken people in very real ways, practically in our world. His feet are firmly on the ground as he is the kingdom of heaven, as the king of the kingdom of heaven battling this cosmic battle. So we need to stop saying that uh, Christianity is, is not social justice or it's, it's, it, it's social justice or it's Jesus. That's not the way that it works. We need to be less either or people and more improv people. Yes and, yes and. Jesus is the king. He comes to forgive sins and Jesus brings the kingdom. He's the king bringing the kingdom of healing people. And we are to go and do likewise. Luke 6.40 puts it this way. A disciple, a disciple of Jesus is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. We are to watch the life of Jesus, the kind of life he lives, the kingdom that he brings, and we're to go and do likewise. And second, I think we need to see that Jesus heals in order to respond to the challenge that's put in front of him from the crowd, from the watching world. See, in this passage, Jesus forgives the man. That's what he does. The man is paralyzed. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And then the scribes freak out. Who do you think you are? You're blaspheming. You're, we're here trying to save the world, and you're trying to wreck it. And implicit in what they're saying is prove it. Prove that you have the authority to forgive sins. Prove that you're here to do something. This kingdom, uh, and ki- this kingdom is something that maybe we can't see. Prove that this cosmic claim that you're making is actually true in your life. And Jesus could have said, I am the king. Don't worry about it. I don't, my identity is not in question here. I am who I am. Deal with it. I don't need to do anything else. But that's not what he does in the passage. He engages with their uh, question. It says in verse 10 and 11, but so that you may know, so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Jesus healing of this man's physical problems is an extension, a response and an extension of his identity and the king and the kingdom. And here's why this is so important for us to hear. I can't imagine any more relevant challenge to the church in North America. Our culture looks at us and they say, Why do you think you're here? You think you have the truth? You're the solution, not the problem. You're blaspheming. You talk about this kind of God of love and of forgiveness, but what we see when we look at Christians is people of judgment and hate. We're here trying to save the world and help people. And Christians, you you just seem to want to take us back to the Stone Age. And so I can't see any better challenge and reflection for us than what Jesus does. That he allows, he hears that criticism and he allows, he allows his uh, power to be shown in the healing of this man. 
And so I can't think of anything better for us to hear than that we are also to follow in that path. We follow Jesus as our king. We need to keep this vision of the problem of sin clear in our minds that Jesus is the only one who can deal with this cosmic problem that plays out in very real ways in our lives. But we also follow him by being his disciples, by becoming like him. As we participate in the work, his work in the world by loving and serving other people, where we allow ourselves to be interrupted. We allow our feet to be planted here, that we're not so heavenly focused that we're no earthly good. We learn to see people, all different kinds of people. We learn to see them and we learn to listen to them. And even in some cases, we, we learn from them what how to see sin in more acute ways. We can learn some of that from our culture. And then we step in, we step in to forgive and to be forgiven and to heal. We care about things like racial reconciliation, the vulnerable in our world. We move into neighborhoods where there are people like our modern day paralytic and we serve them. We care about environmental stewardship and we care about binding wounds. We bring the hands of and feet of Jesus. We bring the kingdom of Jesus as we follow our King. This is our king and this is our kingdom. Don't separate these things from one another. You know, Jesus, I did a bunch of research. Turns out he didn't wear skinny jeans or pleated pants. Turns out he wore a robe. But he's coming to us in a story and he's saying, I didn't wear, I didn't wear pleated pants. I don't wear skinny jeans. But I love both of you. If you're a skinny jeans kingdom person, I love you. I love the way that you see these, the sin in the world. But I want you to come to me and see that I have conquered that and join me in what I'm doing. If you're a pleated pants person, it's great. He says, it's so helpful that you see sin so clearly that you want to show people that in order to glorify and honor me. But don't walk away from the ways that you can practically do that to be my hands and feet. God loves skinny jeans people. He loves pleated pants people. He probably even loves people who wear pleated skinny pants if those exist. And he's saying all of us have something to contribute to the story, but we can't stand at the center. Only Jesus can do that. And so this story is a, an amazing way that Mark opens up his gospel. It's an invitation for us also to open ourselves up to the king and to the kingdom. To come to Jesus, each of us, to have our sins forgiven, to allow him to see the worst inside of us, these things that are broken and dark, and to receive his forgiveness and then to take up our mat and to walk, to go and to bring the kingdom to those around us in the watching world. As we respond, I'm going to lead us in a short prayer. We're going to do some musical worship and whatever way God is calling you to respond to this, to reorganize the way that you look at him, I invite you to do so. And if you need any help or encouragement, I know that we're all distanced and away from each other. Feel free to reach out. We'd love to chat with you. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you. Thank you that you come in this way. And even this story is one that probably most of us have heard many times before. It is just a powerful one. Forgive us for the ways we box you in, we categorize you, in, and we try to make you small. And we ask that you would become big in our lives individually, but also in our community. And that you would shine this light out, that you would be our king. We would understand the kingdom and that we would be agents of the kingdom of heaven and light in our world. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.